0: Episode 10 of South Coast, A Shaman's Tale from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 20 Aram's Inlet, February 24, 2305 Jimmy was calmer than he thought he might be. The winds had died down, and Jake was working through the long line of boats, lifting each in turn and placing them delicately into the harbor. It seemed like such a slow process, but Jake and his crew were moving deliberately down the line of craft. "'You anxious to get going again, Jimmy?' Tony asked. Jimmy stuck his hands deeper into his jacket pockets and just grunted. From his other side, Casey laughed. "'Well, I am. It's been a long winter slinging drinks, and I'm ready to get out of the smell of stale beer.' "'Jimmy looked sideways at her. "'I thought you liked working at the bar,' he said, with a little sideways grin. "'Oh, yeah, great fun,' she said sarcastically. "'Long hours, low pay, drunks who paw you, forget to tip you, "'and all seem to think I look like their sadistic ex. "'And why do it?' Tony asked. "'You got salary to cover your rent, Tony?' "'Tony felt stupid as he mumbled an affirmative. "'Besides,' she mumbled, "'something to do.' "'They all three chuckled. "'So where are we on the quota thing?' she asked quietly.' Tony sighed. Nowhere. We're still trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. Jimmy added, We've sent the word out to the regional reps that we know the landings are unreasonable and that we're working to make sure people know they won't lose their boats, but it's hard when the official line is put up or shut up. We lost a lot of people at the bar anyway, Casey said. Tony added, Yeah, it's a steady trickle of people getting out before the collapse, either being smart or being dumb. At this point, it's hard to tell. Jimmy snorted. I know how they feel. What would this sector be like with that many unemployed people descending on Dunsany? That's not even possible, Tony pointed out. How many people can leave in a month? Casey asked. Just under 2,000, Jimmy replied. Casey's eyes got wide, and even Tony looked sideways. That was a rhetorical question, Jimmy, Casey said. I didn't really expect you'd know the answer. Jimmy rubbed a hand across the back of his neck. Yeah, well, uh, I thought I should know. They all chuckled, if a bit uneasily. In that light, maybe we should book a passage now for a November seat, Tony only half-joked. Down by the dock, Jake settled another boat into the water as if it were no more than a child's model in a wading pool. Seahorses next, Casey said, and the three of them ambled over to where the yard gang would be turning over the lines to them. Jimmy hunched down into his coat as a gust blew in from the ocean. Pulling on his heavy gloves, he muckled onto the mooring line and helped drag the seahorse along the quay. It was always a shock to him when he watched three people manhandle a vessel like the seahorse, using nothing more than human strength. Sure, he couldn't do anything fast, but it was amazing what a solid body leaning against a hawser could accomplish if he just kept the tension up. Murchis's fuel boat was moored at the end of the quay, and all they needed to do was get a bit of fuel. By long tradition, Murch would give every new-launched boat the first hundred liters free. Launch day was always a kind of celebration as boats and crews thronged the bay. The first hundred liters was enough to get the boat started and moving off to the various moorings around the inlet, and it might seem to be an unexpected largesse. Of course, the reality was that it was all company money. Murchison's operation was part of Pirano Fisheries. Ultimately, at some higher level, having the boats pay for fuel was really just transferring credit from one ledger page to another. But it was also a good way to keep track of who was fishing and whether or not any given boat and crew was actually profitable. When each vessel was, for all intents and purposes, an independent profit center... It tended to give the skippers a yardstick for measuring performance that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Jimmy pondered that situation as he was considering how the Combine's rules were written and how Pirano's fisheries fit into it. Was there leverage there? Ultimately, the boats, the yards, the fuel, and even the moorings were Pirano assets on one ledger or another. Everybody on the planet was either a Pirano or allied employee or a direct relation to one. As he was tugging the heavy boat along the pier, he thought of Barney and the contributions that those direct relations made. The Beery was one of the local businesses that was not a Pirano asset. Barney was the spouse of an employee, so he was eligible to live and work on planet under the corporate charter. There was a lot of legal non-competition agreement and all the paperwork that everybody had to sign as part of their employment contract. Spouses, contract partners, and significant others had to sign it to get a business license. But largely, enforcement fell to local control, and market forces were as effective as any to manage it. The seahorse finally made it to the fuel barge, and Murch was there with a big smile and a fuel line. "'Gonna hit him big this season, Jimmy?' he asked with a grin. It was his standard seasonal greeting. "'We're gonna give it a hell of a shot, Murch,' he answered, as he looped the line around a cleat on the pier. He swung neatly over the side, following Murch aboard and getting ready to fire up the diesels as soon as the hydrazine fuel was pumped in. The wheelhouse was cold and stale and smelled faintly of the plastic that had cocooned it for months. He dropped the window and latched the door open, preferring the fresh cold breezes to the stale plastic frost. It only took a few ticks for Murch to pump in a hundred liters, and he was soon off and waving Jimmy on. I'll send a gang around to top you off tomorrow, Jimmy, Murch shouted, as he stepped nimbly back onto the pier, dragging his hose behind him. Jimmy hit the igniters and the engine groaned once, twice, and then caught with a low rumble. He watched the temperature gauge until it started to shift up out of the stone cold range at the bottom of the dial and then waved to Casey and Tony. Backing down against the spring line, the bow slid smoothly out and in a few ticks they were motoring across the inlet to a mooring near the Pirano offices. Tony, Casey and Jimmy were crowded into the wheelhouse as the boat skipped unladen across the bay. Jimmy looked out of the corner of his eye and saw Casey had her head stuck out the window on the far side of the wheelhouse grinning like an idiot into the windstream. Her hat was pulled back and Wisps' of brunette hair were fluttering in the breeze. Glancing back at Tony, he even had a big grin as the infectious optimism of the fresh new season overflowed the grinding worry that they'd been fighting for the dark months. "'Casey, can you and Tony check out the running tackle? Make sure the nets are ready and the deck bearings are all greased up,' Jimmy asked loudly over the thrumming of the engine. She nodded, "'No problem, Skip.' There was surprisingly little to do to prepare the boat for the new season." The fact that it had been a new boat and barely had a chance to get a good shakedown in the fall before it was time to wrap it for the winter contributed. But Jake and his crew knew their stuff when it came to winterizing a fleet. The running tackle was all stowed carefully and secured against the weather before the boat was even lifted from the water and placed in a cradle. The crews all washed out the holes and cleaned out the small galleys. The winter cocoons were nothing more than heavy shrink wrap and sealed the topside against drying wind, snow, and dirt. While it seemed a bit silly to outsiders to cover a boat from something as innocuous as snow and wind, the practice had drastically cut down on start-up time. The boats were built to operate for months out of the year in the caustic saltwater environment, but not to sit idly for months while slow accretions of crud gunked up the running tackle. It was amazing how much damage sitting idle and unprotected could do to a working fishing boat. Within a stand of launch, the seahorse was snugly moored just off quayside, less than a block from Pirano's main offices. Tony and Casey set to on the deck fittings with lubricants that wouldn't gum up in the cold conditions while Jimmy ran through the diagnostics on the newly warmed engine. He sighed when he saw that he had a voltage leak somewhere and pulled out his toolkit from under the bunk, walked around to the engine room hatch, and started tracking it down. It took the rest of that day and most of the next to get the boat ready for the rigors of fishing. But at the end of the day, the three of them, dirty, tired, and jubilant, pronounced the vessel ready. Okay, Jimmy said, depending on the weather— We'll take tomorrow off and wrap up stuff ashore. Day after? Casey said, All right, with a huge smile pasted across her face to keep the smudges of grease company. Tony grinned, nodding, and Jimmy thought he looked more like a kid and dirtier than Casey. The you-aren't-really-going-to-make-me-go-fishing Tony of the previous fall had disappeared to be replaced by this grinning stranger. Jimmy chuckled and went to secure the wheelhouse for the night. Chapter 21. Calum's Cove, February 28, 2304. Alan Thomas sat across the table from Richard and frowned into his coffee. But it's traditional, Richard. You're the village shaman. You have to bless the fleet. The irony of having the company man putting the arm on one of the few people in the village who didn't actually work for the company, at least in capacity as a shaman, wasn't lost on either of them. I know, Alan, but doesn't it seem odd? I'm part of the fleet now, Richard objected. "'Not at all. You'd say a prayer at dinner in your own house, wouldn't you?' Alan asked. "'You think it's the same thing?' Richard replied. "'What's the difference?' Richard stopped arguing. "'I don't know,' he said thoughtfully. "'So you'll do it?' Alan asked, relief heavy in his voice. Richard sighed lightly and said, "'Yeah, I'll do it.' "'Great!' Alan said. "'I'll pass the word for the parade of boats tomorrow morning.' Richard finished his coffee and slid out of the booth. "'Okay, Alan, okay.' When he stepped out of the diner, he glanced down to the harbor and saw his son standing at the end of the pier, looking down at something in the water. Curious, he walked down to the harbor to see what was going on. As he approached the end of the pier, Otto turned and smiled, somewhat distantly. Hello, Father, he said. Hey, Otto, what are you doing? He turned and looked back down into the water at the end of the pier. Just looking at the water here, he said. You know, it's different from the water out at the point. Different? How? Less salty, Otto replied simply. I see, his father said. After a moment, he asked the inevitable question, Are you feeling okay, Otto? In the short pause, a stray breeze jingled the shells on Otto's walking stick. Yes, father, I'm fine, he said, with a slight smile. I'm glad you're going to bless the fleet tomorrow, he added. I feel funny doing it, he admitted, but it is one of the duties of the shaman. It'll be fine, Otto said, and the day after the fishing can begin for a new season. They stood there, looking out over the harbor, and the boats gathered there for a few ticks, the wind rattling the shells and bits tied to Otto's stick. The sound irritated Richard for some reason, but Otto seemed to cock his head as if listening each time they clattered. It was Otto who spoke, a heartbeat before Richard. Well, I suppose we should go home and have some lunch, he said, looking up at his father. He didn't have to look up very far. The growth spurred over the winter and added almost two centimeters to his gangly frame, and on the human scale, suddenly noticing two centimeters in your son is rather a lot. Richard, startled at the amount which his son had grown, turned, and forgetting to speak in his startlement, headed back up the pier as if his son's comment had carried the weight of command. Otto followed alongside, his staff thunking and rattled as he walked. "'Doesn't that racket bother you, Otto?' his father asked after a tick. Otto grinned. "'Sometimes,' he admitted. "'But mostly when I'm out on the beach or the point, there's so much wind rushing past my ears, I don't really hear much except my own heartbeat. When I stand and listen, though, sometimes,' he added a bit shyly. It's as if there's a voice trying to talk to me. That sounds a little spooky, Richard tried to joke. Yes, Otto said. When he didn't add anything more, Richard probed with, Are there any other spooky things you'd like to share? Otto thought about it carefully before replying. No, I don't think so. Becoming a shaman is very odd. Richard smiled. You're becoming a shaman then, he asked. I thought you didn't want to be a shaman. Otto shrugged. I don't seem to be able to help it. Well, you don't have to be the shaman if you don't want to, his father pointed out. Really? Otto asked, and looked up at his father seriously. Can I decide not to breathe? His father looked back, and just as seriously replied, yes. That surprised even Otto until his father ruffled his hair with a grin and a twinkle in his eye and added, but only for very short periods of time. Otto smiled faintly at the joke, and they rounded the last bend to the cottage. For the last few meters, they both thought about what it meant to be shaman. Neither one spoke of it. Lunch wasn't ready when they entered the kitchen. Rachel was still chopping carrots for a lamb stew they'd be having for dinner, but there was fresh bread and cheese along with some dried winter fruit. Otto smiled at his mother and poured tea for all of them. By the time the tea was ready, they were all able to sit together while Richard talked about the blessing of the fleet. Will you do anything different this season? his mother asked. "'People seem to expect the same thing,' Richard replied. "Alan's going to have a podium set at the end of the pier. "'There'll be a parade of boats. "'I'm to bless each as they sail by. "'Afterwards they'll all tie up again "'and everybody will probably party at the gurry-butt "'until it's time to get underway.' His mother laughed. "'Well, wear your long unders. "'Last year you almost caught your death "'standing out there in the wind. "'And don't get any ideas. "'We'll be coming home after the ceremony,' she added firmly. "'And you know the Murrays will be closing early tomorrow, too.' Otto smiled at the banter as the picture of flocking birds flew through his mind. He ate his bread and cheese quietly, thinking about the ritual blessing of the boats. It had been a special day in the household for his whole life. He'd been shocked to learn that his father thought it might be inappropriate to do it since he was now crew. It wasn't like the boats had crews for parade. Usually it was just the skipper and one other person driving the boat around. Some families made it a kind of picnic with the whole crew, and their families all dressed in their finest, and the boats wrapped in colorful bunting and ribbons. There were none that didn't partake in the parade, as one grizzled old fisherman that Otto once met had said, "Sunny boy, I doesn't know if there's anything to this shaman business, but I doesn't see the harm, and I doesn't care to take the chance that I might be wrong. He winked and laughed, as if he'd made some big joke before he was going back to the party that, despite what his mother had said, would follow the blessing of the fleet, and which, more than any other ritual, would mark the real beginning of the new fishing season. Will you be taking Otto with you to bless the fleet, his mother asked, bringing Otto's attention back to the table. Richard appeared to think about it, but Otto knew the answer and only waited to hear how his father would say it. I don't think we need to freeze him out on the pier. Maybe next year, he said with a smile. Rachel shot a look at Otto. Did you want to bless the fleet with your father, hun? She asked, just a tinge of concern mixed with fear in her voice. It was as if she were afraid of what he might answer. Oh, father is a village shaman, Otto said with a smile. He's the one who has to do it. Neither of them seemed to realize that he didn't answer the question, but it solved the immediate problem, and Otto followed up with, "'Any more news on the net?' to further distract them. "'Well, Jimmy Pirano has put out the word quietly that people aren't going to lose their boats. They all know the landings are ridiculous, and they're trying to get it cleared up in Dunsany,' his mother said. "'Apparently they've got a similar problem with the Allied farmers' quotas. They're impossible, but the Combine has threatened to fire and deport anybody who doesn't meet them.' Richard asked, "'And nobody knows why.' "'Rachel shook her head and shrugged. "'Nobody who's saying. "'The best guess is that it's some kind of stock manipulation scheme. "'Nobody on St. Cloud is falling for it "'other than those who are packing up and leaving.' "'Richard grimaced. "'Holly and Harve Bennett left over the weekend. "'You'll have to find somebody else to cut your hair.' "'Rachel just nodded. "'Yeah, I saw the transit order. "'Holly filed a replacement request with the combine. "'They should be able to get a new barber and hairdresser before too long. "'In the meantime, I guess we get a little shaggy or we cut it ourselves.' Otto and Richard both smiled at the small joke. Otto because his hair was already rather long, even by the standards of the village. Richard, because he was bald as a billiard ball. After lunch, Rachel went back to her work on the net, and Richard slipped his jacket on for the short walk out to the shop. Otto put the kettle on to brew some after-lunch tea. "'Will you be joining me, Otto?' his father asked. Otto shook his head. "'Not today, Father. I need to walk on Sandy Long for a time this afternoon.' He said it matter-of-factly, and with a small smile in his father's direction. "'Oh.' "'Richard replied, obviously surprised, but willing to work with it. "'Okay, well, have fun.' "'He shot a glance at Rachel when Otto turned back to the stove, "'but she just shrugged silently and Richard left the cottage. "'You didn't want to go carve with your father, Otto?' "'His mother asked after a few heartbeats. "'He sighed. "'No, mother, I can't.' "'He turned to face her. "'I can't carve like he does. "'He gets very upset when I don't, and I get very upset when I do. "'It's better if we don't carve together.' Rachel saw the conflict in her son's eyes, but didn't know what to do about it. It's okay, hon, she said. I don't think you have to carve like he does. Her eyes flicked to the shark, sitting on top of her monitor, and then back to Otto. Your work is yours. Don't let anybody tell you how to do it. Not even your father, okay? He smiled and went to give her a hug, surprising both of them. Thank you, mother, he added, after a heartbeat. It can't be easy having a shaman in the house. She gave an uncertain laugh as he said it. (laughs) and released him from the hug. No, honey, it's not. She wasn't sure who she was talking about at the moment, but the sentiment was heartfelt. He smiled once more, collected her cup of tea from the sideboard and placed it next to her terminal on a stained piece of rubber that served as her coaster. You'll be going out with the fleet, although it was still more statement than question. She smiled at him. Oh, yes, you'll have the house and shop to yourself again in a few more days. Nodding, he slipped his heavy coat from the peg by the door and shrugged into it. Well, I'm happy you're going fishing. You should be at sea, he said quietly. That's where you belong. She didn't know how to respond to his quiet statements. It was as if he were speaking aloud so he'd hear what he thought. Each statement had a quality of discovery to them, as if he hadn't really known what he was saying until he heard it. I'll be on Sandy Long and back for supper, he said as he headed for the door. Send up a flare if you need me, he joked. It was so unexpected, the joke but his mother coughed a laugh from surprise as much as humor. Next morning, after breakfast and careful preparation, his father left to bless the fleet. He had to go a bit early to deal with the skippers and Alan Thomas on the final preparations for the parade of boats. At mid-morning, Otto and Rachel followed. They could hear the engines before they even turned onto the waterfront. That many boats in that small an area made rather a loud racket. Alan used the flagpole on the Pirano building to signal the start, and the milling boats in the harbor followed up behind Daniel Starling's Louise B. Daniel had been fishing out of Callum's Cove for nearly half a century and was, hands down, the most senior of the skippers in the fleet. He got the position of honor, as he did every stannier since his father retired. Rachel watched the boat's crew slowly pass the end of the pier in a spaced-out line. It was quite a sight, with the 20-odd vessels of the fleet all moving at once and with purpose. Richard stood on the raised podium on the end of the pier, "'and with each passing vessel shouted the ritual phrase, "'Good hunting and safe return. "'Years before, otto had asked his father about that. "'Shouldn't it be good fishing and safe return?' "'Well, Otto, they have to find the fish first. "'He smiled then. "'Besides, it's what my father used to say, "'and people value the familiar rituals.' "'This time he didn't say anything, "'standing still beside his mother "'and observing the parade of boats "'as the long snake of vessels uncoiled across the end of the pier.' ending with the newest boat in the fleet, Esmeralda 2. Even his staff was silent as the boats rumbled around the harbor's basin. It took the better part of a stand, but eventually all the boats were re-moored and the party began in earnest with a barbecue on the beach paid for by Pirano and an audio player blaring dance tunes from somewhere. Rachel, Richard, and Otto stayed for a time. Richard needed to be there to accept the accolades and thanks from all the skippers whose boats he'd blessed. Otto stayed back out of the way while, one after another, the skippers came back and shook Richard's hand, thanking him. When they'd eaten a bit of the chicken and the last of the skippers had thanked Richard, the three of them headed back to the cottage. When they arrived, Otto announced, I'm going to go take a walk on Sandy Long, if that's okay. Rachel said, of course, hon, but be home in time for supper. Don't forget, tomorrow you'll be fixing dinner for us. He smiled. I won't forget, he said, and headed for the shop for the gathering bag before moving off down the trail across the headland. Is it going to be okay, Richard? Rachel asked. Richard sighed. I think so, he said, with the emphasis on think. Does he have the gift? she asked worriedly. Richard shrugged. I don't know if it's the gift or just puberty, he admitted, but he's certainly getting to be a strange one. Are we doing the wrong thing to leave him here alone while we fish? she asked. I don't know, dear one. We can't know except in hindsight, and by then it's too late. His mouth was twisted in a wry smile as he said it. She smiled back at him and took him by the hand. "'We've got the house to ourselves for at least two stands,' she said, not at all shyly. "'I think I know what we should do,' she added, and towed him into the house. Afterwards, she lay cradling her husband's head on her chest and stroking his smooth scalp, but thinking about the eldritch creature that her son was becoming. "'Were you that weird?' she asked quietly. "'What?' Richard answered sleepily. She chuckled briefly, and patting his head said, never mind, sleep. He did, although she lay there for quite some time before extracting herself from his embrace, and dressing warmly went out to the kitchen to put on tea, start dinner, and review what the net might have caught for her. Richard rose shortly after, and kissing her once on the top of her head, shrugged into his jacket to go to work in the shop. Otto returned just before the meal was ready and came directly to the house to help set the table and serve a simple meal of fish, potatoes, onions, and carrots. The meal was uneventful, and they spent a quiet evening clearing up the kitchen and preparing for an early departure. Richard and Rachel rose quietly in the morning and, after a brief breakfast of tea and muffins, left for the village to get their boats underway. It was still dark and very cold, and they walked close together, bound by the glow for the previous afternoon and their shared body heat. They never noticed that Otto rose as well. They were far enough from the cottage when he left the kitchen, taking his staff and walking down to the end of Bentley's head by the light of the stars. In his pocket he had twenty-three stones, and the pocket knife that had belonged to his grandfather. The sea slapped the edges of the stones as he stepped out onto the end of the point. His staff tapped the rock and it gave a hollow thunk sound while the icy wind rattled the shells and scales. He jammed the butt of it into a crack in the rock and stood there, seemingly unaffected by the cold, waiting, listening. Before long he heard the sound of the first boat chugging up the channel. He took the knife out of his pocket, opened the blade, and held it up to glint in the starlight. It flashed once, and the fleshy part of his left hand dripped blood. He folded the knife and slipped it carefully back into his pocket, while the boat continued down the channel toward him. As the boat passed in front of him, he slipped the pebble from his pocket, smeared it with the hot blood from his hand, and accompanied by the wind-driven chime of shells and scales, cast it into the sea as a prayer for safe and successful return. Twenty-two more times. "'as each boat churned the sea in front of him, "'each heading out to harvest the body of the sea. "'He slipped a pebble from his pocket, "'smeared it with his blood, "'and cast it into the ocean. "'When the last boat was gone, "'he reached out with his hand "'and making a fist, "'squeezed a few drops of his blood "'directly into the water. "'Sighing with satisfaction, "'he pulled a handkerchief from his pocket, "'wrapped his hand, "'nodding it awkwardly with one hand in his teeth, "'and then he pulled a staff from the crack in the rock.' I walk slowly back to the cottage. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. The music is from Wish by Rafael Garcia Perdigon. Available in the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandis offered under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandis.org golden.